there's nothing quite like the city of New Orleans. A lot of my family is there, and I love the people, the food and architecture, the smells, and of course, that distinctive sound. And it's not just the music. New Orleanians also have distinctive accents and ways of saying things. Everybody knows everyone's family, and so that's sort of like this thing, you know, checking in with your mama and them. Your mama and them means everyone that you're related to. Um, how's your family? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, how Hurricane Katrina changed the accent of the Crescent City. Later in the show, stories about some of America's iconic shorelines that are disappearing. The town that Bob Dylan sang about, Entangled Up in Blue, he talks about being right outside a fishing boat, right outside of Delacroix. You know, that's no longer there. But first, Katie Carmichael is a linguist and a professor of English at Virginia Tech. She says Hurricane Katrina was a perfect storm for accent changes. She's interviewing hundreds of New Orleans residents to uncover how their accents and ways of talking have changed since the hurricane. Katie, you were in college at Tulane in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina struck. Did Katrina break your heart? Of course, it broke everyone's heart. Uh, this is one of the things that, you know, when I do interviews with New Orleanians, um, you hear the most heart-wrenching stories. Um, and um, people are, ab- you know, they're absolutely traumatized by this. Um, and on the other hand, you also find um, this this love for the city that is so strong, is so overwhelming, and um, feels different from other places. There's this sense of we almost lost what we had. And um, there's this real sort of treasuring of New Orleans is a place, New Orleans is home, my connection to New Orleans amongst New Orleans, whether they left, were displaced um, or not. So after Katrina hit, what first gave you the idea accents have changed in New Orleans to some extent? Yeah, so um, there were a lot of ingredients in the recipe for language change, okay? So any time that you have increased contact between groups that um, speak differently, that were not in contact before, um, you often will get language change, and it can be in different directions, right? It can be people talking more like each other, or it can be people emphasizing the differences between uh, me and you, right? This insider-outsider thing. Um, and uh, in New Orleans, you have this physical movement, this physical displacement of people, both from the city, right? Everyone was displaced for at least a month when the city was evacuated. Um, so um, people who historically hadn't ever lived anywhere else are now in contact with um, people from elsewhere. And those people are saying things like, well, you pronounce that funny. Right. Um, so there's this awareness that builds. And then there's also um, just this exposure to other ways of thinking uh, and other ways of talking. And then you also have um, these outsiders coming in, right? So post-Katrina, um, the population of New Orleans is really quite different and has a lot more non-locals than it's ever had. So you have a National Science Foundation grant to interview a couple hundred people in New Orleans, any that just delight you that you could tell me about? 
oh, there's so many characters in New Orleans. Um, and people just um, have this delightful way of telling stories, right, where you just get this really vivid um coloring of what it's like to live in the city. Um, one thing that I ask everyone about is um, their favorite place to eat. And that is a question that New Orleanians have opinions about. I mean, capital O opinions about. And um, and I also ended up using that as recommendation. So I would go and say, oh, great. This is a great place to eat. Yeah. Did any of them epitomize some of the language differences that you love? Sure. Yeah. Anytime uh, that I would hear someone say something like making groceries for going grocery shopping, um, some folks would be dropping the the R's. So saying Dolan, that kind of iconic New Orleans dialect that, frankly, I think a lot of the rest of the United States isn't aware that New Orleans folks, they don't sound like Southern Bells. They sound kind of like New Yorkers. Can you imitate it a little bit for oh, us? I heard relatives from that area, my relatives from New Orleans, um, yeah. often talking about Dolan. Yep. Mm-hmm. What is yeah. that? So that is uh, actually two features in one right there. That's a great word for an example. Um, so we have the feature of Rlessness, so dropping R's, which, um, you know, this is that feature that you hear in Boston and New York as well, right? New York um, and Pakyakan, Harvard Yard, right? Dolan. Um, you absolutely get this um, throughout New Orleans. And then it's also this other feature that affects the aw vowel, where um, your your tongue is slightly raised when you say it. So instead of aw, it's aw, right? And uh, again, this is a thing that sounds kind of New York-y to us. Um, and uh, you would get this in words like bought and caught. I caught the ball. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but in Dolan, you kind of get both, right? Is that what they used to call in New Orleans the Irish Channel accent? Sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And the Yat accent. So Yat is a word, another word that every New Orleanian knows, but a lot of people who aren't from New Orleans don't seem to be aware of. So yeah, the Yat accent, um, which is from the Irish, um, Italian, and German working class immigrants uh, in New Orleans. Um, mostly the ones who worked uh, along the the river. So the Irish Channel is a neighborhood in New Orleans um, that's along the Mississippi River, where you had a lot of the folks who worked on the in the shipping uh, industry there. Give me more longer examples of the Yat accent, other than "Hey Ruby, where Yat?" <laughs> well, uh, one of the ones that uh, people talk about a lot in New Orleans is uh, asking about your mama and them. That is, I think, also iconic because. Again, uh, New Orleans has um, this population that uh, a lot of people there, they go back for generations, right? So when you live on your block in your neighborhood, you know your neighbor's mom, aunt, uncle, cousin. Everybody uh, knows everyone's family, and so that's sort of like this thing there is – you know, checking in with your mama and them. Your mama and them means everyone that you're related to. Um, How's your family? Uh, And again, this idea of sort of these multi-generational relationships in New Orleans, too. What do you think has been more influential after Katrina? The influence of people from New Orleans who went to other areas and added Mm -hmm. their dialects to, to there? Or the influence of northerners and more white people coming to New Orleans and sort of changing the accent there? That's a great question. Yeah, uh, 
I think that a lot of it is this newcomer population that's coming in, um, and they're bringing what I would call their from anywhere accents, right? So um, they sound, um, we would say, sort of standard, um, and uh, they're they're bringing that to New Orleans. And one of the really interesting things that they're doing, so so your accent is a way of signifying who you are as a person. It's a way of signifying where you're from. Um, and uh, when you have these folks coming in with the from anywhere accents um, and they're meeting up with these folks who have these really rich New Orleanian accents that indicate that they're authentic, that they were here before Katrina, that they're from here, um, what you find is a lot of these from anywhere folks want to borrow pieces of that. Uh, so post Katrina, one of the things that I noticed was this influx of T-shirt shops with local phrases on the T-shirts, right? So um, they would uh, have mayonnaise pronounced as mayonnaise, um, wrench dis- dishes in the zinc. Uh, these phrases, these catchphrases that are very New Orleanian, make groceries. Um, and uh what you'd mostly see is people who don't natively use this, who who don't talk like this, wearing these T-shirts, right? So again, this kind of borrowing of these linguistic features as saying, well, I belong here too. Um, I'm part of this place too, even if I can't, you know, natively produce these linguistic features. Um, but I do think that a lot of these features, as more attention is drawn to them, um, they start to go away, right? Um, because people kind of want you to listen to what they're saying and not how they're saying it. So if you spend enough time pointing out, oh, that's so cute how you say that, um, people stop doing it that way. Or if you say, (laughs) that sounds ignorant, people stop doing it that way. Um, So I do think that some of this heightened awareness about the things that make New Orleans English unique is part of what is, is ushering the decline. When you talk about the New Orleans accent, of course, there's so many. There's so many, yeah. Describe some of the hallmarks of the most distinctive ones. There's three dialects that sort of stand out so far uh, in our research, Um, and this is sort of the the YAT, the the white working class dialect, um, the black dialect, and the Creole dialect, a historic kind of uh, mixed race, um, typically black, white, indigenous, and French heritage group. So um, starting with the Yat dialect, this is the dialect that sounds like New York, right? This is the dialect where you're going to hear that R-lessness, that dropping the R, um, the Pakyaka and Harvard Yard, uh, and that aw sound, that bought sound in it as well. Hello, YouTube. I've seen all these accent tags, and I realized that Southeast Louisiana, especially the New Orleans area, is very underrepresented. Nobody has done our type of accent yet that's called a Yat accent. Yeah, the reason why they call it a Yad accent is because we don't ask, how are you doing, or, you know, what's going on? We ask, hey, where you at? And that is an across-the-board meaning for, where are you at in life? We say things a little bit differently down here, and that is one thing that irks us the most, is when Hollywood films something down in uh, New Orleans, and then they say, you know, they give us these country drawls and everything, make us talk like we from like South Carolina or Georgia or something like that. We don't talk like that. Maybe in other parts of Louisiana, but not New Orleans. The African-American presence in New Orleans is a a major part of the music, culture, heritage, food scene. Um, And linguistically also, there is a way of speaking that seems to iconically point to this specific New Orleans black identity as well. Um, And here you'll hear a clip of uh, a person who is 
doing a YouTube recording of themselves and displaying some of the distinctive uh, New Orleans features. One thing that a lot of interviewees commented on a lot to me was the pronunciation of baby, uh, which in uh, New Orleans, uh, in the African-American population, seems to be pronounced with an extra long initial vowel. So, baby. (laughs) We do not say Nolens. I don't know why people think we say Nolens. Now we say New Orleans, like we say, we will say New Orleans, but we at least pronounce the the new. Like we say the new. We don't say Nolens. Nobody says that. Stop thinking we say that because we don't. It's fake. It's a fraud. I didn't even realize. I mean, I knew I had an accent, but I didn't realize it was like as thick as it is until I moved out here to Atlanta. Everybody's like, say that again, say that again. And if I have to say baby for somebody else again, I'm not. I won't say it. Okay, I'm not. So one of the ways that we look at language change in sociolinguistics is by interviewing people of different ages and uh, looking at how older people and younger people talk, right? The younger people are indicative of the trajectory of change. Um, And the really interesting thing when you look at white, black, and Creole New Orleanians is that the younger populations are doing something completely different than the older populations. Um, And that actually the white and black ways of speaking in New Orleans are diverging further than they had in the past. Um, And this feels a little unexpected given the history of race relations in New Orleans and the segregation that lasted until relatively recently in the history of the city. Um, So how do we kind of reconcile that with the facts? Well, again, when you are more in contact with people, sometimes you sound more like each other. Sometimes you sound more different because you're emphasizing, you know, this is my identity. It's different from yours. Um, We are different groups. Um, And the other interesting thing was um, our Creole speakers, um, our older Creole speakers tend to pattern more with the white New Orleanians and the younger Creole speakers tend to pattern more with the black New Orleanians. So it also seems like there's a shift there in um, the sort of ethnic affiliation that you find. It also amazes me how many distinctive words and phrases there are in New Orleans that you don't hear elsewhere, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I would point to uh, a lot of that being from the French heritage, um, but also the particular mixture of immigrant groups that came there. And of course, the presence of um, you know African-Americans um, and uh, some of these words come directly from African languages as well. Uh, so gumbo, for example, gumbo is uh, sort of a stew that you eat over rice. Um, it can be seafood or it can be andouille sausage. And um, gumbo comes from an African word for okra, the okra plant. Uh, okra is a key ingredient in gumbo. Another example uh, that comes from the French heritage would be lanyap. Uh, lanyap is what we would say a little something extra. So if you go to the butcher and they give you an extra few slices of meat, that's lanyap. That's a little something extra. It's a bonus kind of. You know, from a young age, I've really cared about the disappearing island populations on the East Coast and the Gulf of Mexico and elsewhere, where people have lived for generations and had very distinctive accents, it pains me to think that we're losing them through climate change. So you have Ile de Jean Charles off the New Orleans coast, where you have populations there, for instance, that still speak a kind of French dialect English. Yeah. Why does it feel painful that we're losing something we can't get back, right? 
Because language is identity. Language is heritage. Language is history. Um, but language is always changing. It has always changed. That's why when you read Shakespeare, it sounds really different from the way that we speak today. So um, it's it's tough because change is inevitable. You, you almost, if you don't embrace it, then you'll be left in the dust. Um, but I absolutely get what you mean about the sort of nostalgia of it as well. And I think that's what fuels a lot of um, the linguistic choices that you find in New Orleans post-Katrina is nostalgia and is wanting um, this piece of New Orleans's history that precedes Katrina, this version of New Orleans where maybe Katrina hadn't happened yet or never happened, um, and to have that through the way that you speak. Katie Carmichael, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this on With Good Reason. Thank you. Carmichael is a linguist and a professor of English at Virginia Tech. Up next, climate change is uncovering beachside graves. During a visit to a melting glacier in Alaska, Rick Van Noy started thinking about the climate change conversation. So often we focus on polar bears and ice caps, but there are changes happening all across America. Van Noy is an author and an English professor at Radford University. He set out across the South to collect Southern stories of climate and resilience. His new book is called Sudden Spring, Stories of Adaptation in a Climate Change South. Rick, where did you start looking for places in the South that are experiencing climate change? So I probably started in Norfolk since I'm in Virginia, and I happened to go to Norfolk on on a, what's called a sunny day flood. Um, there was some westerly wind that had kind of moved uh, a small storm surge inland. Couldn't even get to the boat ramp where I was going to meet the Chesapeake Bay Foundation because there was so much water in the streets. There was about a foot of brackish water. Then we got into the boat and we went through some of the neighborhoods and we really saw some sidewalks and streets um, that were underwater. Of course, also in Virginia, I got out to Tangier Island. They've lost about two-thirds of their land mass. Tangier is losing its land so fast that you can even see human remains from cemeteries that have washed into the sandy shore. Yeah, we were... um, uh, a woman named Carol Pruitt Moore had taken me to this island that's north of Tangier called the Uppards. The people used to say they were going upward, so they called it Uppards. And we walked around and scanning the shore, and we were looking at oyster shells and an oyster midden. And she had been talking about how there are um, arrowheads there from the Pokemoke tribe. So I was scanning the ground to look at some, and then she said, don't step there. There's a leg bone. And it was the remains of a a body that had kind of washed out from one of the storms. Um, And there were tombstones that were uh, flattened. You know, that I called the the introduction tombstones by the sea because it just seemed like a kind of grim portent for communities, you know, up and down the East Coast that are seeing changes and experiencing changes. Talk about some of the places you visited and what you noticed in Florida. 
I kind of started in Orlando and New Smyrna Beach, and we went down to Cape Canaveral, and that was really interesting because um, near Cape Canaveral National Seashore, you're also out near NASA. Near NASA, they've had to do some beach nourishment projects and rebuild the dunes just so that you know the launch pads for the rockets aren't inundated with seawater. They're even talking about moving those pads inward, what's sometimes called managed retreat. And, you know, managed retreat is something that some of the cities are also talking about in Florida and in and other places in Virginia, too. Um, the other word they sometimes use is intentional departure. Um, <laughs> and these are scary. These are kind of scary words, right? Right. Um, going to NASA was also interesting because NASA is also one of the government organizations that gives us the science to kind of understand, you know, carbon dioxide levels, et cetera. But also in Florida, I went to the Keys. You know, in the Keys, I definitely saw some of these landscapes that almost look like moonscapes. It's where salt waters come in and kind of drowned out some of the vegetation. One of the things that a person at the Nature Conservancy was talking about is the key deer. So if you go to the Keys, there are these small deer that have adapted to living in the Keys, and they depend on the on the fresh water there. But while well, the salt water is kind of coming in and pushing out that freshwater lens. And so the key deer are in a lot of trouble. And um, he's looking at, you know, off-site conservation plan for some of the key deer. And that, you know, like the tombstones was kind of another kind of scary sign about climate change. If we have to move species off the island, do we eventually have to move people off the island? In Louisiana, you were visiting there with your sons and going Mm -hmm. through areas on a map that you realized were now submerged. So areas on a map that was not that old are now underwater. Yeah, I think NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA has released these new nautical charts in Plaquemines Parish, which is below Louisiana, and they've taken about 40 place names off the chart. Um, I think they've lost land that about equal to the state state of Rhode Island. Um, So they've lost a lot of land there. Like one of the towns, the town that Bob Dylan sang about, Entangled Up in Blue, he talks Mm. about being right outside a fishing boat, right outside of Delacroix. You know, that's no longer there. Um, You can kind of zoom in on Google Earth and, you know, and see just sort of grasses in some of these former places. But my son and some of his friends were with me, and they were going to kind of camp and canoe in the the bayous. And we went to the Isle de Jean Charles, and that's one of the— places that's talked about as being where the, there are the, the first climate change refugees. There's money to relocate them from the island. And when you get to the island, there's a sign that is written in kind of faded ink and marker and kind of fading letters. And But it, what it basically says is, we are not leaving. And he also says something like, if the island is not good, stay away. But that's a different issue, right? Mm-hmm. People do love where they, they're from, yeah. where they grew up, where they live. Everybody loves living on the water. Mm-hmm. So no surprise that people don't want to move. How does that argument relate to climate change? It's that we'll have to spend billions to try to keep people in these soggy, ever-rising waters? I think that's the way the state looks at it. And it's also, yeah, it's human safety and wellness, Um And I think in Louisiana, you know, I think they drew a plan for places they could sort of protect and save and places they could not. And Mm. that community, unfortunately, now it's poor and it's Native American. 
So that also kind of gets into the issue of environmental justice. You know, why were they not included? You know, it's a complicated issue. And there's only about 25 families on the Isle of Jean Charles. And so one person said to me, you know, if you can't figure this all out for 25 families on an island, how are you going to figure it out for New Orleans or Miami? But that's the that's the issue is... It's um, money. ...is the flooding and it's the prevention. Um, and it's doing something on the front end to prepare for, yeah, eventual disaster on the back end. I mean, I think that was sort of the lesson of Katrina is they needed to invest. Um, yeah. And they've spent you know, billions of dollars on new surge barriers. They lost some of their wetlands, so they have new surge barriers, and they have new pump systems, and they've upgraded things that they can. And, of course, it still might not be enough. Um, they're consulting with the Dutch. So is Norfolk. Um, and that's that's the sort of Dutch attitude about this is let's let's try to adapt and let's try to manage it as much as we can. It kind of hurts my heart to hear you describe it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you experience, um, eventually you experience a little bit of grief, a little bit of sadness when you do this, you know. At times you experience something else. You wonder, you know, it's so big and so vast. How can we, um, surely we can't damage it. But then you get up close to it and you see some of the damage. You know, I definitely, I think I was on Cumberland Island and there was a, you know, a live oak and some other trees that were down. And I sort of reached out a hand to touch it. And it was almost like I was touching a body laid to rest. Um, yes. And that affected me. What did you notice about the politics of the region? So here you have people that are plenty smart and people that know the water is changing, the climate is changing, and the effects are very real. Um, what are some of the ways you saw people get around the politics of that? So I did sort of have this, have this hypothesis that surely people wouldn't, they wouldn't deny climate change if they had these, you know, front row seats to it. Um, but that wasn't always the case, you know. Not the case in Tangier Island, um, not the case in Florida and some places where, you know, I think they wanted to ban the word or not use the word in official reports. Um, but other places, other cities and communities, and some with Republican mayors, mayors from, you know, both sides of the political aisle, they really just see it more as a practical issue. They're used to solving problems with sidewalks, taking out the trash, and increasingly they're taking calls, though, about about flooding and what are we going to do about the flooding? And so it's a kind of quality of life issue that's affecting people's ability to get to school or the store. So that's kind of how they're seeing it. The problem is, is yeah, there's not really a, a kind of national discussion. So even though you've got these communities in the South that are doing things and leading on this and trying all kinds of initiatives, not just on the adaptation front, but on the mitigation front, solar initiatives and things like that, we don't yet have this kind of coherent national strategy, but maybe, you know, these conversations and these, these things that are happening at the local level will eventually bubble up. You wrote about measures in Florida regarding transportation that the older folks won't vote for because they don't think they'll be around. One planner said they had a hard time getting public transportation initiatives in Florida because a significant portion of the voting block is, say, over... Um, 60, and they worry that they won't be around to use those public transportation initiatives. Rick Van Noy is a professor of English at Radford University. His new book is Sudden Spring. 
This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. From Virginia Humanities, I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is an encore presentation of With Good Reason. Residents of tiny Tangier Island could become some of America's first climate refugees. Through a partnership with Google, an online project has been raising awareness of Tangier's plight by allowing people from anywhere in the world to visit the endangered island virtually. Former With Good Reason producer Kelly Libby was a collaborator on the project, and she sent us this audio postcard. That pole, that's the last remaining pole of the dock that used to be here. It was a long dock, and that's where we tie our boat, and now that's gone. Carol Pruitt-Moore is a resident of Tangier Island, and almost every day she takes her boat to this place, a marshy area north of Tangier called Uppards. Then all through here was... um. Uh, fig trees and um, wild rose bushes and asparagus and wild anise and um, just wild roses everywhere. It was beautiful. It's all gone now. Before the 1930s, she says, there was a community here called Canaan. Pruitt Moore's grandmother lived here. Today, the last remnants of Canaan are being washed into the Chesapeake Bay, including what's left of a graveyard. Among the sea glass and arrowheads Pruitt Moore comes here to collect are headstones and human bones. For residents of Tangier Island, Uppards represents not just a piece of the island's history, but its possible future. That's because the rise of the sea can be measured by the loss of a whole community. The Uppards is in some ways a, a way for them to think about the urgency that, to which they have to, to move forward with. Matthew Gibson is executive director of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. I'm here working with Gibson and his team on a project that makes it possible to virtually visit Tangier. We're here through a partnership between VFH and Google Outreach to capture the first 360-degree street views of the island. Here and then out to there. You're going to press pause, pause there. Right there before you do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Normally, there. Google I'm Street here. Views, which allow you yeah. to virtually plop down at any address on Earth, are captured by Google Street View cars. You might have seen one. They're colorful cars with big cameras attached to the top. But to capture remote places like Tangier, a different tool is employed. And then I'm going to cross the river. Cross it's the called mountains. the Google Trekker. I'm going to go up the West Ridge. It's hard to describe it. It's, it's basically, you've got this big globe over your head, this big, colorful backpack around your body. And whenever you walk down the street with it, people give you looks because they've never seen anything like it. This is a Google Trekker. A Google Trekker? Yeah. Oh, okay. So have you ever used Google Maps or Google, Google Street View where you can like zoom around different streets and things like yeah. that? Yeah. My husband showed me yesterday where we live. Well. On Google. <laughs> that's right. And then, now you're actually going to be able to move through the streets of Tangier All and right. to the beaches, which would be kind of cool. Yes. It's, it's, it's going to be a way to hopefully help you guys to, to create a narrative about yourselves for advocacy. So. I see. So Tangier will be here tomorrow. All right. You know, that's, yeah. what, that's the idea. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. If it will help us. That's right. Way. That's 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 what we're trying that's to do. That's what it is, huh? <laughs> Take care. Hey there. 
outfitted with this 50-pound backpack. Gibson and his partner in the project, Peter Headland, hiked around the entire island on its streets, where the most common form of transportation is the golf cart, but also along its shoreline. Headland is the director of VFH's Encyclopedia Virginia, and he captured more than a mile of Tangier's main beach. It's a beautiful sandy beach. I mean, you might think you're, you know, looking out at the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean when you're standing on it. And behind the beach are marsh areas full of all sorts of migratory birds and, you know, wading birds. And there's not a soul there. It's completely deserted. It's a really pristine environment. And so we wanted to make sure we not only got the man-made environment at Tangier, but also the natural. Tangier Island needs a seawall to protect it from further erosion. But some policymakers who have the power to make that happen may never even step foot on the island. It's out of the way, in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay, and getting there requires taking a long ferry boat ride. That's why Headland says capturing street views is important. I think if you're trying to you know, evoke sympathy or solidarity for your cause, it's important for people to have a sense of you know, what you are. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to sort of walk down the main street of your community. And so at the very minimum, we've provided a way for people to virtually visit the place and see what a special, unique community it is at, you know, sort of the ground level. The street views captured by Gibson and Headland are now available on Google Maps and Google Earth. For With Good Reason, I'm Kelly Libby. Residents of Tangier face losing their homes and having to move inland. But what if there was no place to go? That's the situation faced by small Polynesian island nations, like Kiribati, located in the Pacific about midway between Hawaii and Australia. In just five years, the island will be unable to provide food and water to its 10,000 citizens. In 10 years, it will be uninhabitable, and in 20, it will be gone. Anthony Bosey is a former instructor from Virginia Military Institute in the Department of English, Rhetoric, and Humanistic Studies. He researched the economic and philosophical questions when rising waters destroy entire communities. Tony, how long before they actually have to board planes and boats and leave the island? Sure. Somewhere in this question is also one of the smaller problems. I think when people talk about disappearing land, they want to know when will the land disappear, right? They have a picture of the last few colonists sitting on the island, like the band on the Titanic, like doing what they do as the island dips below the waves. The issue is now. So I think the real question is, when is the island no longer sustainable for life? And that's now or in the next couple of years. This has drawn your attention because You've been looking at the plight of people who are a nation who lose their nation. Right. I mean, even in your question, we note the problem. The only way we have to talk about these things is with words like nation and state, which imply things like proximity and territory. So when you lose your territory and you no longer have proximity, we don't have a word for that. We don't have a way to deal with it philosophically, legally, anything. If they're not a citizen, how do we deal with them? If they are a citizen of a government, you generally have to interact with that government about their citizenry, but the government's gone, so who do you call? At the very least, a cynical person might say, just send them back home, but where is home at that point? Right, The territory, in this case, is going to be completely gone, or in another case, might be politically and socially different in an undesirable way. So say they all go to Australia. When they show up in Australia, what do we call them? They're certainly not Australian citizens yet. 
there's no way to understand citizenship without a state. And again, we don't have a way to understand a state without territory and proximity. So you have a maybe government that might be sovereign or maybe doesn't exist. There's a rule of law that these people should be beholden to. But right, this is the, the domino effect of the whole thing. The entirety of our international exchange, how we deal with visitors, how we deal with foreign nationals, how we deal with treaties and agreements, all of this is centered on the idea that there are states and people are members of those states. Let's imagine they would go to Australia. Sure. Must Australia accept them? If they were to come to Australia, would they be given over government lands and said, these lands are now the lands of the islanders? So that would be my hope. Although the U.S. government doesn't have the greatest track record with them, the Native American nations in the United States, which are domestically dependent sovereignties, would be a good model. Must Australia accept them? That's an unfair question for anybody outside of Australia to answer. That'd be paternalistic. I think one of the reasons why Australia stands out is we want wherever they end up, if they end up somewhere, and again, these people do want to stay contiguous. They don't want to be put into diaspora and thrown all over the world. So if they need to stay together, we need to find a place that has enough land and enough money to support this. Also probably somewhere that's in a similar climate, because it would be horrible to drop them in the middle of Montana when they've lived in a tropical paradise their whole life. Somewhere that's relatively cultural, culturally similar, where there is some of that island culture that still exists in Australia, right? So it seems like a really good place to go, and hopefully they will accept them. I think the big concern is going to be money, right? Should Australia foot the bill? And the answer to that is certainly no. So do we need a generous government with proximity to ocean life? Or do we need a system of laws at the UN level to say, how do we handle people whose countries disappear from underneath them? Well, we most certainly need new legal codes and systems that are going to deal with this. This isn't going to be the last island to disappear. Certainly not. The problem, though, I worked with the UN briefly, and they're not exactly the quickest people to get things done. It's not going to be done fast enough, at least for the people, say, Kiribati. I mean, we're, talking, again, talking about people that need to start leaving now. What are the islanders themselves thinking these days? They're very much torn between what should happen within the next 20 years. Yeah, most don't want to leave. Um, this is uh, The population is aging, um, and it is a people that this is where they've lived, and it is their home. And as you've pointed out, it's a very special and unique place, and they're pretty confident they're never going to see its likes again. So when reporters go in or when polls are taken, it's usually a fit, almost a 50-50 split or sometimes even weighing towards people that just don't want to leave. Even when presented with the fact of, look, if you stay here, you will die. If international aid comes, it's going to come to take you away. It's not going to come to help you stay here. And the answer is still, fine. This is my home. I'll stay with it. Go down with the ship. There are arguments, there are ethical considerations that we might have a cosmopolitan responsibility to intervene in this case. Some might even call it stopping a suicide in a sense, which we sort of think is legally and ethically a good idea. But on the flip side, showing up somewhere and telling somebody they have to leave their home when they don't want to is also paternalism, and it's also coercive. So it's a very sticky wicket. And the best case scenario, are there mechanisms at the global nation level where we may pay for flights and boat trips and such and pay for resettling families and groups of children and that kind of thing? So um, while there are options principally centered around charities like UNICEF and Oxfam and the Red Cross, there's no official mechanism in place. The hope would be probably, unfortunately, trying to peg some notion of responsibility for climate change, manage some form of bill or penalty because of those effects on climate change, put all that money in a pot. That'll be what pays for the boats, and that'll be what helps, say, Australia build more roads and build buildings. 
I think the most important thing is going to be splitting up the cost. I think that nations will be more happy to take on people if they know they will have help supporting those people. So are nations like the United States, which has such a large carbon footprint and contributes to global warming, be asked to shoulder more of the bill? Absolutely. At least that's my suggestion. Not only because we're in part part responsible for the problem, um, and we're going to be even more responsible as things are looking now with the withdrawal from Paris Accords and things like that, but we also have the capacity to do so. Will you at any point play a role in informing some of the global leaders who may be looking at the intricacies of how to save these people? That would be the hope. One of the few places where philosophers are still respected as something other than navel gazers is at the UN. I've worked with and under some professors that have helped write, like the UN Bill of Rights was principally written by philosophers and and, and legal theorists. There's like two of us in the world that are doing anything about this, really. It's almost never talked about. It's very little covered. The last major paper published was published about five years ago by a philosopher at Yale, but that's really the last we've heard of it. So I think once the government's of the world realize there's an issue and start casting about for people with answers, there's only going to be a few of us to find. Is there ancient wisdom that you could share with us where this has happened before and how people looked at loss of nationhood? Plato does talk about Atlantis a little bit, but he just wants to offer it as, hey, this is a thing that could happen. We should be concerned about it. Maybe we should think about having an answer for it. Also, you get Roman historians who are concerned about a lot of the volcanic eruptions that happened in ancient Italy. Not quite the same because it's not as though Italy disappeared. There's um, Iceland has a history of disappearing land and Norse mythology has histories of disappearing land. In almost all cases, these are cautionary tales about respecting the fierceness of the planet. Very rarely are they anything about what's the legal precedent we can discover here. While the real answers are going to have to come from high-minded philosophy and people pouring through thousands of pages of books and precedent and things, that's not a motivating factor. Why legal theorists and why the UN should focus on this is because the environment is important and the environment's always been important. Um, It is a political issue, but it is also an environmental issue. We all share the planet. It's a closed system. What strikes me as very strange is that's a message that we give to children, right? Children understand that the environment is important. Um, The Lorax is a fine example. Or when I was a kid in elementary school, read a book called The Great Capoc Tree. It's about a logger in Brazil. Uh, The logger falls asleep because it's hot and he's tired. I don't remember if it's in a daze or in a dream, but somewhere on the fringes of conscious reality, the animals start to come to him and express to him what he's doing. And a snake comes and talks about how it lives in the roots, and birds come and talk about how, how they live in the leaves, and about how he's destroying this world, this habitat for these animals, and how massive of an impact that is. It's much more than just cutting down a single tree. And I suspect that there's some break then where we have these elementary school students who love this book and take those messages home and seem to talk about it and care about animals. And then something happens over the next 20, 30 years, and we seem to forget about it. Um, We need to be aware of the fact that our climate change isn't just it's getting a little warmer. And it isn't just, you know, losing parts. I know that Louisiana is suffering from lost land, too. And that's unfortunate, but they have other places to go. The U.S. government can help them in some ways, right? We're not cutting down the tree in that situation. You're only pruning a few branches. But when it comes to something like Kiribati, the tree will be gone, right? We have effectively, with our carbon footprints, been the logger in the Great Kapok Tree. And we are destroying an entire habitat and destroying an entire home for many organisms and people. 
And it's, it's hard and it's sad. And somebody needs to do something about it. Tony Bosey, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Anthony Bosey is a former instructor from Virginia Military Institute in the Department of English, Rhetoric, and Humanistic Studies. Coming up next, the eye of the hurricane. Well, I hope you understand I just had to go back to the island. My next guest is looking for a better way to assess the potential damage of an approaching hurricane. Stephanie Zick is a professor of meteorology at Virginia Tech. She's studying how, where, and when hurricanes lose power. Stephanie, some forecasters are thinking we're going to have a livelier hurricane season now that we're into it, partly because the Atlantic is warmer and partly because there doesn't appear to be El Nino in the Pacific. How would the absence of El Nino relate to hurricane formation? El Nino is this warming of sea surface temperatures in the Pacific. And um, whenever there's an El Nino, there tends to be stronger winds across the Atlantic basin. They will basically tear apart a hurricane. There needs to be pretty weak winds for a hurricane to form because they need to be vertically stacked like a stack of pancakes. So whenever we're not in an El Nino, that tends to be a more favorable environment for tropical cyclones or hurricanes to form. You've developed a new way to determine the intensity of hurricanes. How have we been measuring intensity up to now? Right, so in the Atlantic, we are able to fly into hurricanes. After they form, we generally go out and do reconnaissance. But there's another method for estimating intensity. It's called the Dvorak technique and it uses satellite imagery. It looks at the shape of cloud patterns and you can estimate the intensity of a hurricane without flying into one. So that's very important. Um, What we're starting to see are some features that we can look for in satellite imagery or in the rainfall patterns that can be useful in predicting the future intensity change. And it's basically comparing the shape to a circle So that's what I've been doing in my research. I've been comparing the shape of the rainfall pattern to a circle. Another one is how close is the rainfall to the center of the storm? And whenever precipitation is closer to the center, the energetics are much better for the storm. Can you name some of the well-known past storms that show probably had we measured these characteristics, we might have projected intensity? Right. A great one that a lot of people have heard about is Hurricane Katrina from 2005. It made landfall in South Florida as a Category 1, but then it moved out over the Gulf and intensified very rapidly into a Category 5 hurricane. And the shape metrics all show this consolidation into a very compact storm. 
very circular. Then as it reached peak intensity, these metrics actually indicate that the structure is changing. It's becoming less like a circle. And so this, these indicators actually happened before it reached peak intensity. So if we're able to see these sorts of shape changes happen, we might be able to have a better um, indication when these storms are going to lose intensity as Hurricane Katrina did as it approached landfall. And the importance of that is we could have, had we used your metrics, perhaps have warned people to the east of the storm it was going to be worse there? Yeah, in these types of storms, especially if we're thinking about storms that are going to be dumping a lot of precipitation. If we're able to target the areas that will see the heaviest precipitation, then we can put out a better forecast. Can you tell me about a few of the other storms where you applied your model in looking at past storms? Right. So I've looked at basically all the storms in the Gulf of Mexico since 1998. And all of the storms that were category three strength or higher actually weakened in their approach to landfall. That's a startling thing. Um, that included Hurricane Lily from 2002, Hurricane Ivan from 2004, Hurricane Rita from 2005, Hurricane Isaac from 2012, Hurricane Ivan, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita. These were storms that became very large out over the Gulf of Mexico, and they, they affected broad regions as they made landfall. Luckily, they did weaken as they approached landfall. Hurricane Rita from 2005 made landfall in Texas just after Hurricane Katrina, and I know that a lot of people from Louisiana had actually evacuated to Texas. Ivan was from 2004. It made landfall in the Florida Panhandle. It also weakened slightly as, as it approached landfall. Um, although it did weaken, there were a lot of tornadoes uh, with it as it made landfall, especially on the eastern side. Hurricane Isaac from 2012 uh, was another great example of a storm like this. It was a little bit smaller than these sort of massive storms like Hurricane Katrina and Rita, but it also had a very large storm surge. It made landfall in Louisiana but it impacted a lot of the areas that had impacted Katrina. All of these storms show indications of these shape changes prior to landfall. Stephanie Zick is a professor of meteorology at Virginia Tech. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Josh Jackson at Radio IQ. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.